HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're exploring the intersection between food, agriculture, and competition. Learn how a chicken raising contest in the 1940s led to the poultry industry we have today. And they were going to run a contest and try and develop what they would call the chicken of tomorrow. We'll also venture into the world of agricultural video games, where a new set of tractors is making a lot of fans happy. The biggest addition to 19 was the John Deere's. That's what everyone was hyped for. And we pay a visit to a group of Indian restaurants that aren't on the friendliest of terms. Usually they wait for my restaurant, but after a long wait, they go to next door or downstairs. But this is how they do business. They completely copy whatever we do. Embrace your competitive spirit and be the first to listen to new Meet and 3 episodes by subscribing now. That's Meet Plus Sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. Hello. This is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today, I'm here with two members of the team from Dig In, a fast casual restaurant group based in New York. Taylor Lanzett, the Director of Supply and Sustainability, and Larry C., the Farm Manager. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. And right before the show, I learned something that I didn't know, which is really fun, which is that, Taylor, you actually used to host a show on HRN. Yeah, Eating Matters, <laughs> all about food policy and how it impacts your everyday life. So that's really cool. You're like part of the Heritage Radio family. 100%. <laughs> and that show is still on, hosted by Jenna Liu. Um, yeah. So if you've never listened, definitely check that out. Um, so happy to have you back. <laughs> So um, I think that where we should start is just in case people don't know um, what Dig In is, if you know they're not in New York, they've never gotten to go in and, and eat, um, can you give us a little background on um, when it started, the kind of food you serve, how many locations there are, sort of like the big picture, um, what is Dig In? 
Diggin started in 2011 and combined fine and uh, the best parts of fine dining with fast casual. And so we created our new category called Fine Fast. Um, and our focus is on seasonal American food. So we work directly with producers locally and uh, build menus that support seasonal and regional farms. Um, and how many locations are you at right now? We have 26 locations, uh, three in Boston, and the rest are in New York City. Wow. And the Boston um, locations came fairly recently, yeah? Or Yeah, I think about two years ago. Okay. And so that was like the, uh, probably a big deal, branching outside of... Second market, and yeah. we'll be opening up our third market very soon. Oh. Can you tell us where, or is it top secret? Can't tell you yet. <laughs> Got it. Um, so... You know, you mentioned in that um, description that you source from um, local farms. So that's kind of one of your differentiators in this realm, right? Yeah, we are really focused on uh, working with producers directly, and that manifests in a myriad of ways. Uh, We plan at the beginning of the season. So uh, this past month uh, and from February and March, we planned over 3.5 million pounds of food uh, with farmers who are uh, crop planning for us, building their farm plans around products that we're looking to source from them. We also intentionally work with farmers who are uh, working on transitioning to organic or small scale or looking to scale their business. Uh, And alongside of our own farm, We, uh, Larry helps us find new farm partners and really legitimize the work that we're doing in the space. Right. And what, um, 3.5 million pounds, how does that, um, like what percentage of the food that you're, um, serving is that? Like, how does that number compare to the pounds of food that you're using? So, um, last year, over half of the pounds of vegetables that we served were, uh, sourced locally and over three quarters were sourced, uh, direct from partners that could call me up during this, uh, podcast and just want to chat and catch up. <laughs> that happens a lot. You're on the phone with All farmers the a lot. I'm sure. <laughs> Not just Larry, right? <laughs> Larry takes up the most time, but, uh... <laughs> um, well, so, and I want to get into that. I want to like really talk about your day to day and how you work with farmers, but, um, Larry, why don't you give us some context on what the farm itself looks like? So we started digging farm two years ago. We're moving into our third season now. Okay. Uh, we grow about 12 to 14, really depends on, you know, how you count it. 12 to 14 <laughs> acres of uh, mixed vegetables in Chester, New York, which is in southern Orange County, about hour 15 uh, north of the city uh, from Midtown. It's also, fun fact, where I grew up. In Chester, <laughs> really? Fun well, fact. so I grew up in Warwick, which is right next to Chester. Right next door, um, amazing. And so I spent, yeah, my entire childhood there. Chester was, um, I was in Chester a lot. You know, my high school best friend's boyfriend worked at the pizzeria there, so. <laughs> no way. What, the one in, in the village? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a cute little, that's a cute little town. Oh, we love going to that pizza place. Yeah. What about Alan's Falafel? And then Alan's Falafel. That did not exist. Oh. <laughs> I've heard that it's really good. Now when I go Absolutely. visit my family, everyone talks about it. <laughs> we eat a lot of Alan's yeah. <laughs> on the farm. Um, but yeah, it's such a great, a cool agricultural region. Yeah, the black it's, dirt. Yeah, the black dirt. So um, we grow in the black dirt, which... Mm-hmm. Uh, 
for our listeners who don't know what you know we mean by the black dirt, it is muck soil. So what it is is essentially about 3,000 acres of wetland that was drained out in the early 20th century. And so if you kind of like think about that, the, the concept of draining 3,000 acres of wetland today is unfathomable. Yeah. And so this... Uh, this region is really unique because it's super fertile soil. Um, the soil is jet black. I remember when uh, Taylor and I first visited um, the site that we're on, I didn't want to walk into it because <laughs> w- when you're on a farm, normally you see anything that dark, it's usually cow poop. Huh. And so all of the alarms are going off in my head. It was like, don't touch this, don't touch this. And eventually it was like, oh no, this is just That's soil. It's just the dirt, yeah. Um, and so we're really lucky to be there. I think it's a, you know, it's the largest stretch of black dirt of muck soil in the country outside the Everglades. And it'll always be that way again because, you know, a, a project this scale would never ever happen again. Hmm. And, um, you know, we're really lucky to be there. It's super fertile. We never actually have to lay comp- or push any compost onto the ground. Um, it's, it has all the fertility that we need just to begin with at a baseline. Um, you know, on a normal organic farm, you know, the organic matter, which is the measure of carbon and general soil health, usually around three to five percent in, um, you know, in a standard farm on a really high performing farm, you're looking at 10 to 15 percent. Here, our baseline is somewhere between 30 to 50 percent. Oh, my gosh. Um, So it's essentially like growing in compost itself, you know, and our plants grow really fast. They grow really well. But on the flip side, right, um, anything, you know, if our plants grow well, the weeds grow even faster. Um, so in organic production, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the main challenge has always been weeds and, you know, we have more than enough <laughs> at our farm <laughs> to serve the region. But, um, in any case, yeah, so, so we do like, you know, 12 to 14 there. The primary focus of our farm is education. It's okay. education for our chefs who come visit, uh, you know, every other week during the summer. They come, they learn about farming. They learn about the work that it takes to, to grow food and, you know, learn some of the science behind it. And, you know, we, try, you know, we make it fun and, you know, they help us out on the farm a little bit. And, you know, this way our intention is that when our chefs come out and they participate in the harvest and they do work on the farm, you know, when they see those vegetables again in the restaurant, they're going to cook it with more soul. They're not going to waste the food. They're going to understand where it's coming from and, you know, the amount of labor and passion that was put into it at its start. And they should be um, expected to put that same amount of labor and passion in it when they're cooking it. Right. And, um, you know, we think it's a really powerful thing. Everyone, all of our um, chefs, you know, they, they want to come out to the farm. You know, whenever I go into any of our diggins, they're like, Larry, when are we going to the farm? When are we going to the farm? <laughs> There's a, a really amazing emotional connection, right, when any chef or um, someone who works in food walks onto a farm and it's the moment when you harvest a cherry tomato and it bursts in your mouth and the sun's shining on you yeah. and you're sinking in the black dirt. Um, and so for a lot of our team members who um, are chefs in training or learning what that culinary experience could look like, uh, sometimes this is their first experience on a farm. And the amount of information that they're taking in, plus the emotional connection, is just really rewarding. And I think it's important, too, to recognize that when we say chefs, we talk about every team member in our restaurants, right? We consider every person who works at Dig In a chef or a chef in training. You know, that's where we eventually want them to become. Hmm. Um, so when we say chefs, we mean everybody at our restaurants, and they all come out. Yeah, they have a grand old time there. You know, they get some <laughs> Allens, um, you know, do some field work. Um, and then, you know, we also, in, 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 on the other side of that, too, is, you know, we run a, uh, a farmer training program as well. And so every year we bring on a, a new crew. Um, the people that we hire, we hire people with very little experience in the field, right? Hmm. You know, one year at the most, maybe two years. Um, right. And so, you know, we, you know, we pay above the industry average. We pay overtime um, on our farm, which is 
um, and I'm not sure if your uh, listeners know this, but uh, is not required right. um, for farms to, to pay overtime. So it's a pretty good deal, you know, for our crew. And you know, we want them to, you know, we want to bring a new crew in every year because we want this to be a training place where young people come in and they get the skills that they need to move on to any other farm and become a manager there or to start their own farm. You know, I, I call this like kind of a crash course yeah. in agriculture uh, because, you know, we just had our crew start uh, on Monday and on Tuesday we, they're already on a tractor tilling a field. Wow. You know, we, we really <laughs> want them to, ha- to have the tools and the uh, confidence to, to work um, or not, not, not just to work, but to, to run their own operations soon after they, they leave our farm. And so they take part of, you know, every single part of our farm from greenhouse management, tractor operation, uh, post-harvest delivery, everything, you know, everything that I do, they do as well. And we're an open book, you know, they see, you know, all of our budgets, they see all of our equipment purchases, you know, so that they have an actual well-rounded view of what it takes to run a farm. Right. And not just that, but we're linking the dig-in restaurant group and the supply team to them as well. So if they have questions about what it looks like to, um, supply for a restaurant of our size, Mm. how to work with buyers, the differences between wholesale and retail, uh, the experience is really well-rounded. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And so then what about the food that you're growing? So (laughs) the produce, um, does it end up on plates at Dig In, um, in bowls, I think you mostly have? (laughs) Yeah, so we, so um, our, so our farm, we grow, you know, it's a standard I don't know, standard, but it's a mixed vegetable farm, and mm. we grow all the vegetables that um, you know you might see on any other farm, right? Uh, I like to call it a uh, like a hybrid CSA wholesale model, where we grow a little bit of everything and a lot of a few things. We grow mm. um, a lot of cucumbers, we grow a lot of tomatoes, uh, we grew a lot of eggplant last year. We're not going to grow quite as much this year, <laughs> um, and we and we grow a lot of chili peppers. Um, and so we kind of think of those as cornerstones of our operation, which is where. Um, you know, our budget is built okay. um, and everything else is mostly for our crew to, to understand, like, how do you grow these things, right? Okay. You know, digging buys in so much broccoli from our partner farms in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, that doesn't necessarily make sense for me to uh, grow any broccoli at all. But, you know, it would, you know, we'd be a poor training operation if our farmers didn't know how to grow broccoli, right? Mm. So we grow, you know, we want our, uh, our team to experience um, every single vegetable that they might see on any other farm. Right. And... Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> and yes, everything that we grow does go to our restaurants. Yeah. Uh, you know, we understand that this is a, a fairly unique position that our farm is in, um, in that it is, you know, funded by Dig In, um, and that uh, you know we have certain advantages in the industry, and we want to be a good neighbor and we want to be a good force in agriculture. So we don't want to go to a farmer's market and compete with other, you know, young farmers or other family farmers. You know, mm-hmm. we don't want to run a CSA because there are already so many CSAs in our area. Right. So our intention is that we try to grow things that will take Diggins reliance on supply outside of our region and focus it into New York again. Got it. Um, yeah. And I mean, it, it's, like how how much do you think is coming like actually going from the farm to dig in? Like, do you have any idea of like how many pounds of produce you're producing there? Yeah. Um, so last year, probably close to eighty thousand pounds went wow. to uh, dig in, and this year we're hoping for over a hundred thousand. Yeah, I think like I think uh, I think one hundred fifty. One hundred and fifty. You know, we like to challenge ourselves here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but on a Sort of for for context, last year in total, Dig In bought six million pounds of vegetables. So right. 
there's um, a small proportion. It's a small portion, but uh, what really sticks is that for so many, um, there's such variety in it, Mm. and the a lot of the produce that's not core to our menu will. Uh, be the inspiration for our specials program. Got it. Um, so you could walk into a dig and um, sort of have a surprise and delight experience where um, Lara is growing a small amount of shiso and it ends up at your dig-in. Mm. Yeah, so a lot of the specials that you'll see at our restaurants will come from the farm. And then there are certain items, too, that come directly from our supply. So, for example, last year, we grew all the basil for our pesto throughout the summer. Mm. So all the pesto in our restaurants were from our farm. So we'll kind of pick and choose certain items that we say that this is reasonable for a farm of our size to grow, right? Like, we could never supply, you know, all the kale or all the broccoli <laughs> that uh, Diggin produces. I'm but glad, there are certain I'm glad everyone's eating so much broccoli. That's uh, great news for the health of <laughs> New Yorkers. <laughs> broccoli and sweet potatoes. Huh. I mean, that's, but, that's great. You know, I think what's really cool is that, you know, since we started this farm, you know, we... You know, we have our our own, you know, I always like to say that, you know, we farm in the way of our mentors and we kind of add on and we, you know, we grow a little bit, uh, but it's always, you know, uh, we all have certain styles, right? Um, And as Taylor knows, you know, I have a certain style of farming and I have a certain style of pack out and I have a certain, you know, selection of varieties that I really like. Mm -hmm. And so, you know... The tomatoes that are that we get in normally through our suppliers are a certain set. You know, we have a contract out, and you know they deliver the same thing every week. Right. For us, you know, we grow a whole different, you know, way different, like a larger variety and all these weird different shapes, and then we send those to our restaurants too, right? Mm. And so this forces our chefs to be more agile, right, to adapt to like you know normally you know before we had this farm, right, it would just be the same tomatoes every week, and yeah. you know it's the same thing, but now you know, all of a sudden, boom, here's a, here's a, a case of tomatoes where you've never seen it before. And like, what are you going to do with it? Mm. And you know, you're not going to be able to cut these the same way that you normally cut them. Right. So it, it, it makes our chefs think a little bit more and, and think outside the box that, the, you know, that they've always been trained in here at Dig In to, to expect new vegetables, to expect new ways of cooking and to learn and to grow. Right. And that's a really powerful and important thing. Yeah. And, and kind of unexpected at, um, a restaurant, like Dig In, like where you're, you know, going for lunch or, you know, you might not expect like, to have this really interesting special on the menu um, at a similar, you know, another restaurant of that kind. Um, okay, so we've got Larry is growing these amazing vegetables in Orange County. And then, Taylor, you're working with all these other farmers all over the region. Um, this inevitably involves a lot of logistics. Love logistics. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, me too, which is why I'm asking you about this. But... You know, I mean, I think most, especially like places in the fast casual space, when you have a lot of locations of a restaurant, um, it's easier to buy from Cisco or Baldor um, because you can place an order and they show up with everything and you don't have to deal with that, right? So what are some of the challenges that you face in terms of making this work? Yeah. um, So we have a central distribution center in the Bronx that Mm -hmm. allows us to be really agile and nimble, similar to how Larry was explaining our chefs and our restaurants operate. And um, what this allows us to do is receive orders as small as 10 cases from partners. So um, some partners who maybe just want to send us 10 cases a week of kale and kale and for them, that's scale. We work with them to do that. So over the course of a given season, we could be receiving kale from up to 20 different partners. Mm. Um, 
with that obviously creates some challenges. Uh, farmers definitely have a bad rep for not being great communicators. Um, <laughs> They're busy. <laughs> we're all busy. We're all busy. Um, but there's definitely a large, it's just a matter of putting the puzzle together. So yeah. figuring out um, when product is coming in and especially if we're trying to feature that particular farm's product, uh, it's a lot of dates and moving around deliveries and mm-hmm. um, half of the cost sometimes can be figuring out getting it into the city and just the Mm. cost of distribution. So our main focus is never allowing the cost of moving food to take away from the farmer, either making money or allowing them to participate in the program. Mm. So it's always about taking away any barrier for entry. And, um, we work with growers to do that. And sometimes it's logistics, sometimes it's packing, sometimes it's pack size and right yeah well and I would imagine that helps a farmer a lot to be able to um just drop off at that distribution point for all of the restaurants in New York rather than having to have someone drive around to each one exactly yeah that would take forever especially in the city I can't yeah (laughs) yeah I think if I asked our farmers to deliver to 27 restaurants um might be a little bit more challenging of a conversation to have <laughs> right I, I would not do it <laughs> i can just say that first right larry would not do it <laughs> i mean you know i was talking to you know i met a new grower this morning at union square mm-hmm. and uh you know we were talking about you know bringing him on and you know buying carrots from him and i told him you know we we have a single distribution point in hunts point in the bronx that you can deliver to and he was like amazing yeah and he was like that is a huge selling point for us to work with you all because um, you know, we who wants to drive? Who wants to right. drive in Manhattan? Yeah. You know, I mean, no one wants to drive in Manhattan. A big truck, absolutely not. Yeah. And at a larger scale, it just really allows us to have full ownership of our supply chain, which is our goal at mm. Dig. We want to be able to know every point at which it comes to us, and we can trust what we're sending out to our restaurants, mm-hmm. um, and also have really good conversations and uh, and feedback opportunities with our suppliers. So, hey. Um, you know what, next time just send the kale loose. Don't even bother bunching it. Does this save you time on the labor? Can you uh, maybe be quicker when you're harvesting? All of these things, being able to control the whole supply chain allows us to get even better at what we're doing. Mm. And I think too, you know, I think that's a a great... uh strength of us having our own farm, right? Because at the end of each season, I can sit down with Taylor and we can talk about what are the challenges of what we've grown this year? You know, what can we, you know, why did this turn out this way? You know, why should you be packing this way? And so, you know, because I I work with Taylor, right? We can sit down and have this conversation. We can have this conversation over a couple of days, over, you know, you know, for as long as it is necessary, and we can get that information. Whereas any other farmer is like, I, I don't have time to just like sit down with you and take a whole week to discuss, you know, what happened in the season. But I can you know Taylor, and and that's information that helps us with our our partners too, and you know allows us to grow a closer bond to all of our all of our other farmers. Yeah, absolutely. And what um one thing I'm curious about too is um today is such a beautiful day. I was thinking about this on the way over. I'm like, oh, it's finally spring. It's so nice out. Um, what do you do in the winter? I mean, we are not in a region where you can source locally year-round, right? So what, how do you manage that? Yeah, uh, great, great question. Um, <laughs> You're like, April, it's the bane of my existence. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, I actually think April is the hardest month to source uh, food. It's yeah. brutal. But um, there are. Uh, we have a pretty strong and robust local program in the winter as well. And a lot of that is because uh, agriculture and has helped us in storage crops. Mm. Um, so our winter menu is made up of butternut squash and apples and beets and mm-hmm. carrots. 
Um, actually, a lot of the winter squashes. But this allows us to really um, still celebrate local food and guarantee that producers are making money in December and January and March. And we plan with them such that we can uh, they can store that for us or we can figure out storage opportunities that allow us to keep having a weekly income that we provide for them. Right. The, the other thing is uh, we definitely, you know, it's not every crop has a has a strong shelf life. So we'll move down south before we move west. Mm. And that has just allowed us to celebrate more of the Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina farmers um, that are a part of the regional food system mm-hmm. and uh, prevent us from going to California. Got it. Um, do you uh, source from any of the indoor farms around New York too, like greens or... We have a, a few partnerships with uh, Gotham Greens, mm. Arrow Farms, um, Bowery Farms, uh, and we love to celebrate them, especially in the winter. Right. Uh, and in the summer, we definitely, those relationships are valuable, and we offer more of a uh, responsive nature. So they'll say, hey, we have a ton of extra product that we'd love to move, or hey, this product was slightly damaged, or what we'd call imperfect. Can you help us? And we play that role um, just because we do lean towards supporting um, outdoor soil-driven agriculture in the summer. Interesting. Um, all right. So we need to take a quick break. Um, we will be back. I want to, um, after the break, maybe get a little into just the value of the way you do things and local sourcing. And we'll kind of, I was going to say, we'll dig into that. Oh, my, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning Alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk, combined with expertise and affinage, is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Hey there, seems like you like podcasts. My name is Eli Sussman. I'm a chef and restaurant owner, and I've got a great podcast right here on Heritage Radio Network called The Line. On my show, I interview chefs and restaurateurs about the trajectory of their career. It's a one-on-one conversation where we talk about where it all started to where they are cooking now and everything in between. You can find The Line everywhere you get your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, we're back. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here with Taylor and Larry from Dig In, and we've been talking about um, all of the, the ways that they grow and source the food for um, the many restaurants. Um, so we've been talking a lot about logistics and how this all works. Um, obviously, both of you believe strongly in sourcing from local farms, um, especially given, you know, we talked about how it's harder to do things this way, right, than just 
working with a, a big distributor. Um, I'm like super interested in talking about this question of like the value of local and is it, you know, when there's so many other ways to qualify sourcing good food, like, you know, do you only source organic or do you, you know, there, there are lots of ways people kind of qualify, um, how they source. And, um, I'm, I'm just curious to hear from you when, when someone asks you like, why, why the focus on sourcing local food? What's your first response? I would say that local has always been and has been a driver of what Dig, how Dig sources food, but even greater than that is the direct relationships and partnerships that we have. And I think that's a little bit harder to quantify sometimes mm. than local sourcing, but there are many anecdotes that I think speak even broader to just what it means to buy local food. Mm -hmm. um, for example... Um, while we have exceptional relationships with farmers where we uh, plan with them in advance and offer really clear opportunities to be a part of the program, we figure out logistics, right? And all this stuff that's buying local food and buying direct is just one part. Um, but more so, uh, the, a great example would be Larry, who is working in Orange County and helping other farmers. So hey, Larry, can I borrow the tractor? Can you help me with my fields this week? There's all these other ways in which supporting local food doesn't have to include buying, and it includes someone uh, working at their farmer's market, working on a farm, um, or in Larry's case, helping other farmers succeed. And I think that positions us uh, to care a little bit more about just the, the work that's being done on the relationship side to really drive what a local and then regional food system could look like. Yeah, we... You know, on the farm, like I, like I mentioned before, right, we want to be good partners in the, in the space and we want to advance our industry. Um, so for a lot of the young farmers near us, you know, the site that we're on is run by the Chester Agricultural um, Center. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's an incubator type program yeah. that leases land to young farmers at a reduced rate. Um, and so we're there. We, we lease land there, and there are all these other young farmers around us who don't have the money um, or the capital to purchase equipment. And so our, you know, our... I guess, ethical um, standing or, you know, our drive here to, to, to make it easier for our partners or people who might eventually become our partners, right? These other young farmers yeah. is to make their lives easier to help them build their businesses to be sustainable environmentally and economically. So we do tractor work for them because we have a nice tractor and we have really mm. nice equipment um, and we do it for free. Um, and, you know, this year we... Last or not this year? Well, like last year, we had a young lady on my crew who was very interested in uh, starting her own farm, and she had only worked on our farm for one year. Actually, her first year farming, and you know, I think it it speaks to the strength of our training program. That at the end of that, she said that she wanted to start her own farm, and so we're piloting an incubator program right now where we are giving her. Uh, and and uh, her her farm and her name is uh, Kayla Holterman. Uh, her farm is uh, Radiance Farm. Oh, cool! And also, she's also from Warwick as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, but so you know, we're giving her land. Uh, we're letting her use our equipment. Um, and you know, I think most importantly, we're giving her a sales outlet. Uh, yeah. Because I think. You know, this is not a surprise, right? The the uh, the pie uh, for local agriculture it doesn't really grow that quickly year on year, right? It shifts mm -hmm. a little bit. Sometimes CSAs go more, sometimes the farmers markets are more, sometimes wholesale. But for the most part, it's been fairly stable. And so, 
you know, by giving her an outlet to sell 150 pounds of basil a week to our restaurants, um, we think that that's a way that we can build her business and start another young, uh, another young small business uh, in uh, in our community. Yeah, yeah. And the only thing I'll add there too, Larry, and this is something that positions us in a pretty unique space. We want to get really good at um, collecting knowledge and stories from season after season, and get really sort of ahead of information sharing. So uh, because of our unique position, we can Larry can synthesize what's happening either at our farm or from other farms in such a way where the value around local becomes even more meaningful because we can, um, hey, last year we tried this and it worked really well. Or if this happens, here's how to navigate it. Um, and I think in the next couple of years, we just want to figure out the best way to be an outlet of sharing that and maybe prevent people from making the same mistakes that we've made or our partners have made. Mm. Certainly made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> I, you know, in, in a grand sense, right, I think that when we buy local, we are supporting these small businesses, right? Yeah. And Taylor knows more about our uh, young farmer and uh, minority farmer portfolio than, than I do. But we're trying to build these these small businesses so they become larger and they become bigger parts of their communities, right? Because yeah. traditionally farms have been hubs of communities. Uh, and we want... Um, more farms to pop up. We want to support more small farms to create, to make them bigger farms and to have them, you know, become these centers where people can go to um, and get their fresh produce from, right? That they're not just, you know, maybe, and, and nothing against the people of one or two acres operations, right? But yeah. for people who want to grow bigger, we want to give them the ability to grow bigger by uh, by joining our uh, our family of farmers. <laughs> well, and, and the Chester Agricultural Center is such an interesting model. I mean, you kind of mentioned it, but, you know, I think there's, what, like seven farms on the in the group where you are? Something like yeah. that. A little, yes. You know, maybe it's... A <laughs> yeah, plus minus. Yeah, oh, yeah. It changes um, every year. But, you know, that, that used to be um, one giant um, onion farm that was sprayed with pesticides regularly sure. right behind a community. Um, and now it's all these people growing food organically, all different young farmers. Um, it, it's kind of, I guess, it's it's really an interesting model. And I like, do you think that um, having everyone together like that, like, does that, has that experience... Um, do you think that it's a good model for helping young farmers get started, having people all in one place like that? Sure, yeah. I think um, for, well, let's tackle this a couple different ways, right? Yeah. For me as a farmer, it's great to be around other people, yeah. right? Because normally <laughs> it's just like me and the crew and, right. you know, we eventually get tired of each other. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's nice to always be around other people and it's cool to see lots of different operations, right? I think... It wasn't, you know, intentionally done this way, but what has happened at the CAC is that there are that we have all these different enterprises, but we all do something a little different, right? We have someone who does CSA, we have mm. someone who does farmers markets, we have someone who does flowers, uh, and then you know we do wholesale, mm-hmm. right? So it was cool to see different operations and to see different ways of growing. Um, and there's a lot of knowledge sharing there because everyone, like you know, everyone has their own way of growing, and you know we all share tips. And you know the black dirt is such a unique place that um, you know nothing really prepares you for it, right? It's so much different than upland farming mm-hmm. um, that this knowledge sharing is really, really important. And the fact that there is a community around us to help support each other when um, you know when we have a bad year like last year, mm. uh, you know it was one yeah. of the rainiest years I think in the past like yeah. 50 years uh, in upstate New York. You know we were all there to kind of just be like, well, you know this is this is a, this is a bad deal, but you know, at least we're all in this together. You know, <laughs> you know it, we're we're all kind of falling down. Yeah, together. the CAC has a um, 
for lack of better comparison, sort of like a we work or collaborative working yeah. space vibe where you can share re- you share resources, right? Yeah, and, and that was yeah that, that that's the next part I was getting I was gonna get to um, was that you know there is all this infrastructure here, right? Like our walk-in is the size of a barn. I mean, mm. it's huge. <laughs> you know, we would never be able. I mean, you know, digging could build something like that, right? right? But like for for a young farmer, they would Someone never be able out, to build something like that, to. right? Yeah, there are all these barns, there are all these greenhouses that you can rent. Um, and for someone who, you know, may be a little undercapitalized at the beginning of their of their business, it's a good deal to be able to go in there and not have to build your own greenhouse or have to build your own barn, which is, you know, the, the intention behind our incubator as well, that we want to give Kayla and Radiance Farm the ability to, you know, gain capital, to gain experience without having to, you know, risk everything for her. Because she's young. She's, I think, like 21, 22. Mm. Um, and so... You know, she, we, we want her to be able to put that money into bank and then eventually build out her own infrastructure, buy her own tractor, build her own greenhouse. So essentially, the same thing what the, what the uh, Chester Act Center does for all these other farmers. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, one thing that I, I want to push you a little on the local thing. Um, one thing I was just reading this article this week and, you know, one thing that gets thrown a lot around a lot is like for people who are trying to figure out how they should eat um, in order to minimize environmental impact, um, people say like, well, you know, it's not really better for the environment because local farmers use older trucks and, you know, you think that it's the transportation miles are, are going to be a benefit, but then actually it might not be. Um, I would just love to hear your thoughts on like if you're someone who wants to eat in a way that minimizes environmental impact, um, is local the way to go? There's a lot of nuance there, um, but <laughs> I uh, love nuance. <laughs> Let's get into it. Um, local is one way that you can have a really good impact on the environment. Also, eating a diet of mostly vegetables right. is also a really good way that you can have an impact on the environment, and that's something that Dig In really champions. Um, if you were to choose never eating vegetables versus eating vegetables that were from a couple thousand miles away, I would say go with the vegetables. Eat vegetables, yeah. yeah. Um, That's sort of like one of the only overarching like diet and environmental <laughs> things you can just always say. Like, yes, eat vegetables. Eat vegetables. Um, don't eat diff- sugar. Yes. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, better for you and the planet. Right. Uh, I would say that there's... I think a lot of people need to figure out what works for them that they can stick to. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's going to the farmer's market and maybe learning a little bit about the tools and the practices uh, that uh, that farmer is using that you can align with, great. Mm-hmm. But maybe someone's a little bit more inclined to learning about labor practices and immigration. And that's also a really valid way to make your um, choices around eating that you know someone might care about more than transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the most important thing is just kind of having a personal stance on it and finding producers that you can support. Uh, another great nuance would be uh, having organic certification versus not. And some farmers are priced out of the certification but practice even higher standards than what organic certification entails. Right. Um, and then there's a great case to be made for supporting second, third, fourth generation family farms. Um, you know, there's, you can choose to work with younger or beginning farmers, but keeping farm in farmland in production and or taking it from conventional intensive and putting it into super great dynamic organic production um, is what a younger generation could do. 
Um, so not a necessarily direct answer to that, but yeah. I think there's a lot of exciting nuance where if someone has a policy or a position that they really stand behind, there are so many producers you can find to support that. Right. And so, uh, and then, and then I don't want to seem like, you know, I don't want to drill down on a single point or like latch onto something that's mm. just like one thing, right? But if we're talking about old equipment and stuff that may not be as yeah. environmentally friendly as, you know, the newer tractors, I mean, is this world a better place if every farmer was just a millionaire who decided to run their own little two, two acre operation and can buy the newest equipment and can buy an electric tractor? You know, I think that, yeah, sure, you know, our young farmers, they can't afford to buy a $40,000, $50,000, dollars John Deere tractor. Mm-hmm. Um, but does that make it? Does that disqualify them from being from trying to work in in sync with the environment to think about the holistic health of their land? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that a lot of our young farmers are pushing our industry in a in a better direction, and they have a lot of great ideas. And everyone's trying to grow their business and expand their businesses, but everyone's got to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and these small farms, you know, they're on their way to becoming better operations and everyone's trying to get better. You know, none of us came into this business to spray or to drive old trucks or to pollute the environment, right? We're all trying to do better. And, you know, I think too, um, even even if, say, like this farm is, you know, 10% better, you know, mm-hmm. environmentally than another farm, well, that's 10%, you know, and if we all do 10% better, that's a huge difference, you know, and we keep moving in that direction. Yeah. You know, I always tell my my team that, like, maybe I might not be the most sustainable farmer that you'll ever meet, right? But I think that I do 10% better than, than the guy that I taught was taught under. Mm. And if you guys do 10% better than me and the people who, that you train do 10% better than you, you know, like, that, that's going to change the world. Yeah, progress. Yeah, and there's, I think for a lot of folks, the, being able to either find food that they feel as if represents what their diet entails, um, I think is also super important. So... If you're an apple eater, there's no reason why you can't buy local apples in New York year-round. Right. Right? Like, don't don't buy them from Washington State. But also, if you um, are Hispanic or non-white or looking for a different type of cuisine that's not represented at the farmer's market, there are tons of organizations that um, have specific and diverse markets that you can find food that represents your culture. And I think that's a really important piece to allow uh, just more diversity in what people are searching for and make sure that what people are looking for is found. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that we could sort of go on a whole other <laughs> conversation there. Um, but, I mean, I, I think everything that you said about, especially just um, just getting young farmers started, I mean, that, that, again, could be just a whole conversation. I think, I mean, we've, I've had a lot of shows where we talk about just the challenges that young farmers face, and we need a lot of farmers right now right like we need to get a lot of people on land and um get them farming because farmers are just aging and um yeah we need more young farmers you know we need better ideas we need people who are more diverse as well in our uh, in, in our industry you know i think for a long time uh the you know i and and this might not be a very popular opinion but <laughs> You know, I, I, I feel very strongly that uh, our, you know, the, the small, like, local farm mm-hmm. uh, community or industry has been built on unfair labor practices that we've been 100%. paying people very... Mm-hmm. You know, when I started, I got paid $600 a month um, to work on a farm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's hard work, yeah. you know? And I went to college, you know? <laughs> like, you know... Right. Um, but Right, and we're talking about farmers. We're not even talking about 
farm workers that maybe aren't the farm owners exactly. that are all minority immigrants. That, yeah. Exactly, yeah. right? And so, I, you know, a lot of the people who were able to make things work came, come from, uh, you know, privileged backgrounds uh-huh. um, that come from places that, you know, you know, they're predominantly white, they're predominantly middle to upper middle class. Right. Um, and it has really skewed our industry towards, you know, um, towards this class of people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a few couple of years ago, I had someone come up to me and tell I just told you the story in the yeah. car, um, you know, uh, come up to me at a conference and she was like, are you Larry, the farmer from Dig In? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I am. How, how, did, how did you know? <laughs> this happens all like, Celebrity. Well, well no, she, but, but she was like, you know, um, I heard Diggin hired an Asian farmer, so I just assumed it was you because you're the only Asian oh farmer God. here, you know. And I mean, I mean, it's kind of cool for me, but right. you know, it, you know, but it doesn't like, speak oh well God. to our industry, yeah. right? Oh that God. we don't have these many people, right. uh, this many people, and you know, I think for, uh, you know, how do we serve our underrepresented communities, right? Yeah, you can't go into an Asian community and try to sell uh, pesto basil, right. you know, like we're not going to touch that. Um, you know, you have to understand these communities that you want to serve, and uh, th- our industry as a whole does not serve our our minority communities, mm. and that's why we, you know, we need to bring in more more minorities. We need to figure out a way that, and and this is you know a very grand problem, right, uh, uh, on a macro scale that this is a problem with yeah. agriculture. How do we raise the incomes of our farmers so that we can have righteous wages for all of our employees? Because not everyone can afford to pay their employees like they can compl- can afford to pay. Right. Again, you know, we realize that we are in a privileged position to be able to pay our employees like this. But how do we, you know, create an agriculture system that is, you know, judicious and fair to all the people who work here, you know? Um, you know, to all of our farm workers in California, you know, I mean, we don't have to get too deep into that whole thing, right? But, like, how do we raise our wages? How do we, um, you know, uh, not, not raise our standing in society, but, you know, shine a light on this portion of our industry and say, this is why your food is this cheap. is because these working conditions are like this. Right. Yeah. Sorry, this is becoming a three-part series. <laughs> oh, my God. This is like, I love these topics. Um, the, the last thing I'll say to that point, Larry, is all the work that uh, Larry's doing to increase access to learning how to farm and create opportunities for people um, who otherwise might not have access to it, we are also doing that at the Dig-In Supply Chain more broadly. Mm. So we set... Um, goals for ourselves and really intentionally seek out uh, marginalized women, people of color, queer immigrant farmers that we can spend money with. We want to support them and use our purchasing power for good. Right. Well, we have to wrap up and I think that is a great place to end. (laughs) Um, Thank you both for being here. Um, This is a really, really interesting conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. My first podcast. (laughs) Amazing. Or radio show, I suppose. (laughs) It's both. (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. And don't forget to support independent food radio by visiting heritageradionetwork.com and clicking on the beating heart. See you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.